There's sometimes the like playing a little dumb to improve the show, and there's the like genuinely don't understand. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined by, by Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. We've got a, a great show coming up for you, uh, you know, featuring uh, Nobel Prize winning white papers, children's uh, health insurance program. Uh, but, but first, we, we want to start off with a, a very special message from Sarah Cliff. I do have a special message. How special? It is so special. I have <sighs> a new podcast. Wait, what? You knew about this, Ezra. Are you going to be on The Weeds? I'm still going to be on The Weeds. Oh, okay. But next week, we are launching a new show called The Impact. It is a reported podcast. So it's a little different from anything we've done at Vox before. Um, longtime listeners of The Weeds may remember Weeds in the Wild, a kind of pop-up show where we'd go off somewhere interesting and talk to actual people. And that is what we do on The Impact. You have to subscribe. You won't automatically get it in this feed. And we actually have a small little trailer here for you. So we're going we're gonna to play that, and hopefully you'll love it. On October 16th, Vox is launching a new podcast, The Impact, a show about real people. I got pregnant two months after I graduated high school. It was not planned. <laughs> we are going to look at the policies that affect people's lives. Policies that work. I just do what I'm supposed to do, what I was trained to do. And policies that need some work. Please, this is a massive HIPAA violation. I am your host, Sarah Cliff, and I love policy because it affects people. I think too often here in D.C., we stop covering laws when they pass. But on The Impact... We are going to follow those policies out into the real world where all of us live. It's just fantastic. It's just great. Subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm just going to say, I know a lot about this podcast. I was playing dumb earlier. This podcast is fucking great, and you should subscribe to Do it. Do you ever have, say, like, Vox.com writers who people might know, like, playing characters in, in dramatizations? It is true. We have um, a Matt Iglesias cameo. We have actual Weeds listeners in our first episode. Oh, cool. If you guys remember a few episodes back, we asked for emergency room bills. You will find out what we did to those if you subscribe to The Impact, which you can do on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever you get your podcast. Um, search for Vox The Impact. Or if you go on Vox, if you go on the Weeds Facebook page, if you look at my Facebook page, you can find many, many links to subscribe. It is going to be great and awesome. I am so, so, so excited about this project, and I think Weeds listeners will really enjoy it. You wanna know what I'm pretty excited about? What are you excited about, Ezra? The fact that the Supreme Court might actually rule uh, to limit gerrymandering in the United States of America. And it's no podcast. It's but... no, I mean, it's not a podcast, but down the road, there'll be a good the impact on what happened if exactly. they rule in this way. That'd be great. So, this is a really big, I began to hear that the Supreme Court was ruling on gerrymandering, and I initially chalk this up to sort of fevered liberal imagination that, okay, they're going to hear some kind of case and people are getting excited about it, but, but there was really nothing here. And I've really dug into this recently, and I think this is a very big deal. Um, and it's also an amazing Weedsy story because the reason the Supreme Court might rule to limit gerrymandering is because of social science. 
is because social science might have made it possible. This is the social science gobbledygook. The social science gobbledygook in the <laughs> words John of Roberts Chief Justice not- John Roberts. All right, so here's the background. This is a case out of Wisconsin. In, in 2012, they did a redistricting in 2010. In 2012, under the first election, under the new maps, Republican candidates in the state house in Wisconsin, they won 48% of the vote, but 60 of the 99 legislative seats. So 48 to 60, strong gerrymander. The Democrats, 51% that year, gave them a mere 39 seats. Um, two years later, Republicans won that same share of the vote. They ended up with 63 seats, a 24-seat differential. So what they had figured out how to do, and actually political scientists ran a lot of tests on the on the Wisconsin districts using different kinds of electoral assumptions. Democrats win by plus three, that kind of thing. They found that Republicans had figured out a way to draw the maps to lock in a legislative majority, basically no matter what happened. Like there was, you could have a Democratic wave bigger than any you'd had in 40 years, and Republicans would keep the state legislature. So, so that's the background here. This is coming into a context where the Supreme Court has said in the past that gerrymandering can be unconstitutional. The problem is they don't know how to tell when it is, and they definitely don't know what to do about it. So the, the, the term here that has come up a lot is workable standard, manageable standard. They need something that if they're going to say some kind of litmus test, that if they're going to say this kind of gerrymandering is not appropriate, it needs to compare against an unbiased, consistent test that, that returns results people are comfortable with. And then that test needs to be able to create a, a clear remedy. Okay, what do you do next? Because the Supreme Court does not want to be in the position of becoming the gerrymanders of the United States. Um, this kind of thing has happened before, by the way. There, there was a period in American history when districts would get drawn and you would have like, this is a little bit of an exaggeration, but 25 people in this district, 5 million people in that district. People were, uh, political parties were drawing districts to lock in their seats in a very straightforward way. They were just making them different sizes. And it was under the Earl Warren court, court that that became unconstitutional. You had to be trying to give everybody equal votes. The districts had to be relatively equal in population. That is a Supreme Court innovation. But the reason they were able to do it was it was pretty straightforward to say, okay, mathematically, the number of people in districts in a state should be relatively um, um, equal. All right. So what happens here is you have this Wisconsin map. The Wisconsin map is very, very gerrymandered. And at the same time, you have a sort of revolution happening off to the side in social science. Eric McGee and University of Chicago law professor Nicholas Stephanopoulos invents this new standard for measuring partisan gerrymanders called the efficiency gap. And the efficiency gap is pretty interesting. So you can gerrymander really in two ways. Um, You can do what's called packing, where you try to pack all of the political parties' voters into one district. So the idea there is, say, Democrats are packed into a district where the Democratic candidate always wins by 85%, but that means all those Democrats are not available to vote in other congressional districts. Or you can do cracking, where you're spreading your own people very, very thin. Um, But so every one of your candidates wins by like 54%, uh, and you get this very efficient um, situation. So basically what the efficiency gap is doing is it tests how many votes are wasted. So basically how many votes you're having over a candidate's winning margin in all districts, and then compares the wasted vote count of Republicans and Democrats. Well, it's also the votes you're wasting in districts you lost, right? You're comparing those two against yeah, yeah, each other. Yeah, all of them. So all wasted votes everywhere. Um, and you're comparing them against each other. And you're basically seeing, is there a huge difference 
in wasted votes across groups. So I want to use an example here. And, and we had actually one of the lawyers involved uh, with the plaintiffs write this up at, at Vox.com. But so he he writes, so take a state with five districts. You have two won easily by Democrats, 76% to 24%, and then three other districts that were won narrowly by Republicans, so 59% to 41%. So if you take that, Democrats wasted 26% of the vote in the two districts that they won, right? So that that's 76 above 51, um, or about 50 plus one, I should say. Uh, and then Republicans wasted 24% of the vote in the two districts they lost and 9% in the three districts that they win. So if you run the math on all this, the Democrats get 55% of the statewide vote, but just 40% of the seats, which means there's a pro-Republican efficiency gap of 20%. And so basically what the plaintiffs are alleging in this case is that there is now a way to measure clearly how whether something has been partisan gerrymandered uh, too aggressively. And they're not saying there should be no level of partisan gerrymandering. They're admitting, look, there's geographical uh, clusterings, all these different things. Uh, but the, the the top efficiency gap the Supreme Court should be willing to tolerate is plus seven percentage points. Um, and I should say that that's a little bit, I'm saying that a little bit wrong. That is what the authors of this believe, um, the authors of the efficiency gap. The plaintiffs have suggested that, but they, they're open to the Supreme Court coming up with plus nine or plus, you know, whatever, um, plus five. You can do it in all kinds of ways. But one of the interesting things here is that it is social science on both sides. So Matt mentioned that Chief Justice John Roberts, uh, Neil Gorsuch had a very weird analogy about steak rubs, <laughs> where he's like, well, I know what I like on my steak rub, but I couldn't tell you precisely what's in it. It's like some turmeric. You know, so there's this kind of like anti-social sciencing happening among the Republicans on, on the court, uh, with the exception potentially of Kennedy, who is very aggressive in questioning the defendants, very aggressive in questioning the, the state of Wisconsin. But this is social science on both sides. So the way that Wisconsin map and the way all these gerrymandering maps are done now is using very sophisticated political science theories for measuring partisanship in districts, then using those theories uh, to create models that you stress test across all kinds of different model election results. And then by running through that again and again and again, you come up with this very robust gerrymandered map. So there's no social science gobbledygook here. Social science has made us much better at gerrymandering and by the exact same token, it could make us much better at seeing when social science has been used to create an incredibly robust gerrymander because you can do all this testing against it and then say, nope, you got to go back and bring it down to something more like plus seven or plus five or plus six, whatever you might whatever you might imagine. But this is, it's persuasive stuff. Um, Kennedy's questioning has made liberals very uh, optimistic. Doesn't mean Kennedy will rule with the four liberals, but it does seem that for the first time, it looks like there's something that could be seen as a manageable standard. It looks like there might be a 5-4 majority for it. And um, and this is in front of the Supreme Court uh, with a pretty in a pretty robust way. Well, I think the context for like when the social science revolution is happening matters too. So one of the reasons this becomes such a key issue is the wave midterm election in 2010, which gave Republicans control of many, many state legislatures. And they like super smartly use that power to entrench their majority and look at ways that they would be more likely to remain in power. In a lot of ways, you know, we don't need to relitigate the 2010 ele election, but it seems like Democrats kind of fell down on the ball on that one. You know, this was right after they, they, there was a lot happening on the national level. You had Dodd-Frank, you had Obamacare, but on the state level, it just really got hammered in those midterm elections. And Republicans have very smartly used that power. So even if you did have a Democrat wave, like Ezra was saying, it is still quite 
difficult to, and this resonates, you know, both in state legislatures and in congressional districts, that you're looking at both levels of government being affected by Republican control um, and Republican gerrymandering. Not to say the Democrats don't do it, just Republicans have been in a much better legislative place to do it over the past six years. And this is also happening before the 2020 census, which is going to, you know, lead to more redistricting. So it seems to come at a particularly pivotal moment in this moment where you do have one party that controls a lot of state legislatures, a lot of districting, and before states will have a chance to redistrict in four years, that you are looking at a moment where this case could be quite, quite influential. You know, one of the things I found interesting reading over the oral arguments is kind of this debate about whether it is the court's role, which seems to be pretty central to this. In the last decision we had on this, which was about a decade ago, the court said, like, yeah, we we could intervene. We just don't have a good formula. Like, um, you know, the steak rub thing, that, which seems like a weird analogy because it seems pretty easy to look up, like, what is in <laughs> one's steak rub? But that there wasn't a good enough standard. The standard would just be so incredibly complex. It's not one you could, the court could really implement. And a lot of the oral arguments kind of focus on this idea of should this be a legislative issue? Like, should Congress step in and fix this because that's their role? Or is Congress never going to fix it? Because, you know, there's going to be very, very little um, little um, motivation for those in power to make it easier for other people to gain power, which is one of the arguments you saw from, from the challengers saying this is not something Congress is going to do. You just can't expect them to do that. Um, so a lot of the arguments seem to be partially about the formula, but partially about, you know, is this the role of courts? What what role do courts play? And it seems like the Supreme Court has been a little bit wobbly about, like, what role it is they they see themselves playing in gerrymandering. And, and this was, I mean, this was the issue. Ezra referenced, there was a, a case, uh, Baker v. Carr, in, in 1962, when the Supreme Court said uh, roughly that state legislative districts have to have roughly equal numbers of people in them. And the sort of legal argument there was around, like, is, is this the job of the judicial system, right? There was, once the Supreme Court made that ruling, it comes to seem like common sense to us that the rule is that state legislative districts have to be fair in terms of the number of people in them. But this was revolutionary in 1962, right? Like, in the good old days, before polarization and partisanship and all these bad things ruined everything and American institutions were bad, like in the in the 50s and, and 40s, um, state legislatures could just say, like, well, the whole population of Providence gets, you know, one seat and rural areas in Rhode Island get 50. And, like, there was nothing, there was no rule against that. And it was considered for decades, like, well, of course the courts couldn't do that. And then one day they were like, yeah, we can. And, and it changed. Some context on this that gives me a little doubt, though, about the this litigation strategy. Um, way back in the, the winter of... 2008, 2009, before before Barack Obama was inaugurated, I, I went to a conference with mostly law professors, some activists, a, a couple journalists, and it was sort of about like a progressive legal agenda for, you know, the Obama and, and post-Obama eras. And and one thing that came up was, was gerrymandering and a, a, a woman who I, I, I won't name, but she's a very distinguished uh, legal scholar, uh, works on these issues. She was explaining all the complexities of 
gerrymandering as a topic and that, you know, you can look at maps which are really funny looking with a lot of squiggly lines and say, you know, I find this squiggliness objectionable. Or you can look at a place like it's a state where 30% of the population is African-American, but none of the districts are majority minority and say, oh, I find that to be objectionable. Or you can look at a place that's highly non-proportional, right, where you you have uh, – as we had in Wisconsin, 51% of people are voting for Democrats, but they're only getting 30% of the seats. Or you could look at a place where there are no contested elections, right? Where essentially you have 54 House members, but only two actual swing states and say, well, that's bad, right? And she's saying, you know, we have all these different different values, right? We want a system that represents people fairly, that provides sort of... Um, uh, mirroring representation, but we also want there to be competitive seats. You know, we we want fair fight seats, and it's very challenging to come up with a kind of single standard that that does everything that you want. And I, you know, I was younger and, and more of a jerk then, and I was like, "Well, why don't we just have proportional representation everywhere?" And then she was like, "Well, you know, like in my law school class, like we we do proportional representation last because it honestly solves all these problems and it makes the." thinking through of the legal doctrines sort of pointless and and the ideas to train people to, to like, do do the litigation, Um, which is a long-winded way of saying that, like, the correct solution is to have a proportional representation system. You want to just take a moment to say what that is? Sure. Um, So in a a proportional representation system, there's a few different ways that you do it. Uh, But, you know, roughly speaking, it's like a, a state like medium-sized state like Wisconsin uh, for house races, right? Everybody would just go and either you would put down uh, the names of like eight different people in order who you wanted, or you would vote for one party or another, and you would draw it up on a list. And uh, if a party got 40% of the vote, they'd be entitled to exactly 40% of the seats. Uh, If they got 45% of the vote, they'd get 45% of the seats. In that kind of thing, you guarantee proportionality because it's proportional, but you also guarantee that elections will be meaningfully contested because getting 25% is way better than getting 10%. So you invest everywhere. Parties will have minority candidates on their list if they want to appeal to minority voters uh, just naturally as, as a system of doing it. And, you know, there you are. And there's some, I'm not saying, there's there's no like totally flawless system and there's nuances between mixed members, systems like they have in Germany, closed lists like they have in France, but they address these gerrymandering issues. And it, just because I think this was an interesting question on this, let's say you did this in a state like California, how do you apportion the seats geographically then? Right. Because right? So, like you have all Californians voting in this mixed rank right. way. Well, so California is so big yeah. that you might want to cut it into two or three states. Nevada. But the well, so in Nevada, you would just you would treat Nevada as one big district, right? Where everybody goes and votes. And you just pull everyone up statewide, right? And in a really big state like California, you might create two or three districts, each of which had a couple dozen members, but the exact nuances of line drawing just wouldn't matter that much in that kind of aggregation. Anyway, not to say the Supreme Court should or should not mandate that, but that's like conceptually the the fix that people want. Whereas one thing that was interesting to me in in the Vox piece that was done is the guy kept like bending over backwards to say he had these different models and things that showed that this wasn't just the result of Wisconsin's like quote unquote political geography. And this is what 
frustrates me about the gerrymandering conversation. Like, if you get into the, you know, redistricting nerds and stuff like that, there'll be this is like bitter, vicious arguments about how much of the Republican disproportionality is due to, quote-unquote, gerrymandering, and how much of it is due to what they call, quote-unquote, clustering. So the clustering idea, right, is that if you had, like, a big city that was 90% Democratic and and the municipal limits of that city perfectly made up one congressional district, and then it was surrounded by nine suburban counties whose borders were all perfectly contained, exactly one district's worth of people, and each of those counties was like 55, 45% Republican, then you you could have a map that had no gerrymander at all, right? Like, in its artistic aesthetic qualities, it would just be saying each county is its own district. Uh, Democrats would get 49.5% of the vote and 10% of the representatives. And then, like, the Cook Political Report guys would be like, sucks for Democrats, they just clustered— and and the whole, like, legacy of the gerrymandering concept, you know, it, it goes back to this cartoon about Elbridge Gerry and his map. And, like, literally the critique in the cartoon was, like, this district looks funny. It's like a salamander. Ha, ha, ha. And that just, it's a, it's a very shallow way of, of looking at things. The Wisconsin map is so severe that adopting this kind of, like, it ought to reflect the quote-unquote, political geography standard would help Democrats. But actually entrenching that principle consistently is just saying that the party with the more urban support base deserves to suffer electoral consequences. Well, let me push that. a... I, I think I'm very much with you on proportional representation. But but so let me push a little bit more in, I think, with the argument for why this would be a, a step forward. So number one, the example you bring up would completely fail an efficiency gap test, right? That That's an example of something that would look, when you ran an efficiency right. gap analysis, really, really bad. So it, now, the efficiency gap analysis, I think in all the versions people are talking about, just leaves a lot of room for clustering, gerrymandering, et cetera, to keep happening. It's just the the analogy, I think, that Emily Bazelon used in, in a good piece on this in the New York Times was, it's a little bit like how um, you referee a boxing match. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know the two people are going to go in there and like try to kill each other, um, but you're trying to keep out kidney shots. So, I mean, nobody's saying this will solve all problems with disproportionality. But one thing that I, I do think needs to be thought through here is that if you imagine something like proportional representation being an end goal, or just you imagine fairness being an end goal, independent commissions being an end goal, bipartisan commissions being an end goal, choose your end goal. An end goal that is just literally not whoever won the last election at the right time goes into a room with a lot of software and tries to choose their voters as effectively as possible to fuck the other party and entrench an anti-democratic advantage for themselves that has no relationship to public will. All right, let's just say like the goal is to not have that, which is currently how most of America works. One problem with gerrymandering is that it keeps entrenching power that makes any kind of remedy more difficult. So, when you successfully gerrymander, you continuously have the party that successfully gerrymandered with the people who are benefiting from that particular gerrymander in power. Um, there's a good piece by Jesse Wegman, again, again in The Times, and he writes that the natural check against such self-serving behavior is the will of the people, right? When you ask the Supreme Court or something, well, what is going to stop this gerrymandering from happening if you don't? You'll sometimes hear this, well, well the voters, the voters will get mad. But if you've effectively gerrymandered the voters, so as Wegman writes, 
The check against such self-serving behavior is the will of the people as expressed their votes. But when those voters are systematically silenced by the lawmakers themselves, they, they have no recourse, which is true. So I, I would think of this a little bit as in order to even over time have any chance at coming to, to a reasonable equilibrium here, you can't end up in a system where all the power is held by the gerrymanders themselves. Like, that's a total disaster. Uh, another thing that I just think is interesting, we're talking about Republicans here. This is not just something Republicans do. So there's a 2012 analysis by the Brennan Center. And they found that in the states where Republicans drew the maps after that gerrymander, their candidates won about 53% of the vote and 72% of the seats. In the places where Democrats drew the maps, their candidates won about 56% of the vote and 71% of the seats. So the quality of the gerrymandering is pretty similar. The difference was Republicans drew the maps in 17 states, accounting for 40% of total House seats, and Democrats did it in six states, accounting for only about 10% of House seats. So both parties gerrymander. It's a the 2010 election, as Sarah says, was a total wipeout for Democrats. So they just got their, their heads handed to them in it. But, but this is a bad thing all around. I'll just make one last point on this. This is one of those moments where you remember that the outcome of the 2016 election was really profound. Because whatever else you believe about it, Antonin Scalia would have been replaced by a more liberal justice, like just flatly. Um, and that liberal justice would have taken what is a plausible 5-4 majority, but maybe a 4-5 loss, and turned it into a likely 6-3 or 5-4 majority um, for some kind of remedy for gerrymandering. Because right now, there's no real question about where the liberal bloc on the court, on the court votes. And so, of course, having done that, um, it now further entrenches, right? Like power entrenches power. And I do think that's the, the core thing about gerrymandering. However you fix it, whatever you want to do about it, the real problem here is that power entrenches power in a way well, that but makes at least remedying Republicans that won fair and square by having the will of the people at their back <laughs> right, yes. in 2016, right? Yes. It's, not, it was it's, not like, it's not like a minority viewpoint carried the day there. Yes, exactly. So this stuff is very depressing. Proportionality would be better. I agree with Matt on the way in which the conversation has gotten into this, like there's natural gerrymandering where just like God wants urban voters to not have any power. <laughs> then there's unnatural gerrymandering where like we should be upset. But we have ways of making American politics a lot more fair. I actually, by the way, just as one final point, think that one lesson of all this is that these questions of process probably need in the Democratic Party to become much more central to their governing agenda because otherwise, like, they're just in a position. I think I saw a uh, assessment recently that just where the Senate uh, voting is going, you're going to have in 2050-ish, 30% of the population holding 70% of the senators, 70% of the population getting 30 of 100 senators. And I mean, this stuff is going in a bad, a very bad direction um, for the party that appears to have a reasonably persistent majority in elections. I mean, one of the things you could see coming out of this case, I think it's interesting that it is so focused on social science. And you essentially had the Supreme Court a decade ago saying, like, bring us a formula and we'll test it. Like, we can't come up with one. And I think, like you were saying, Ezra, there's been a lot of development of, like, the map-making technology, of the testing technology, that there has been a, a lot of this case, like, in a weird way, seems to revolve on computing power and, like, being able to do things with maps that we couldn't do, um, you know, 10 years ago when this last came up um, in front of the Supreme Court. 
And I think one of the things you could see, like, even if you have this ruling, let's say you do have the ruling in favor that they say, yes, the efficiency gap is a good measure and, like, they do 7%, 5 or 9 that does not seem like it'll be the final word. Like, that will near certainly be challenged as a standard. Um, one of the, you know, areas of Supreme Court rulings that I've covered the most closely is um, rulings on abortion and when abortion should or should not be legal. And one of the things you see is Roe v. Wade is standing, but it's been changed a lot, that the justices constantly— and part of this has to do with technology, that, you know, babies can survive much earlier if they're born premature on their own than they could have in 1973 when the Roe ruling was made. So you see the justices, like, constantly revising, changing, tweaking the Roe standard to look different than it did in 1973, in part responding to new challenges and in part responding to the fact that things just change in the world. And um, you know, I listened to a really great interview they had on More Perfect, where they did, and I'm blanking on who they interviewed, but it was a great mathematician who they talked to. And one of the points she raised that I thought was quite relevant was that this is only like one in many skirmishes, that there will be more battles about this. There'll be more battles because computers can do more things. And the standard is likely to to change over, over time, even if it is created in a ruling this coming summer. So that's I just like another plug for proportionality. You go back to Baker v. Carr, right? Like this is, I mean, because people may not know, but he, there's no like black letter text of the Constitution that says you need to have equal population state legislative districts, right? There was a, I, I don't, I don't want to say activist judges, but there was some creative interpretation that the spirit of the Constitution, you know, requires some kind of fairness here. And of course, you could have said, you could have gotten this bogged down in specificity, right? Like, how actually are you supposed to guarantee the districts have literally equal numbers of people when mathematically that's hard, children are born, people move, we don't have a national ID card system. And the Supreme Court agreed to, like, brush aside the fact that their one-person-one-vote doctrine cannot actually be implemented and completely abstract away from questions like, should you count prisoners? But they said, like, you know what? We're sort of pulling out of the constitutional muck this principle that one person should get one vote. And it's like, do your best. And if you deviate, like, a little bit, we'll give you a pass. But if you deviate a lot, we won't. And they could have back then, right? Like, the whole text of that, would read so similarly if instead of saying one person, one vote, they'd said each vote must carry equal weight, right? Mm -hmm. And then you'd have a proportional representation standard. And like the mere fact that when they were like mucking around in the sort of like lawyerly making stuff up, they came up with a slightly different turn of phrase. I mean, look, you know, it's practical. You got to win a case. You got to convince Anthony Kennedy. But like, I, I think people who actually care about this should set their doctrinal standards like a little higher and more clearly and, you know, acknowledge that to some extent in constitutional law, pe people are making things up. All right, just on our way out of this segment, I, I want to note two quick things. So one, I don't think I, I think the efficiency gap standard is a little hard to explain, probably if you can't see anything about it. So we're going to have in show notes, Alvin Chang, uh, our great graphics uh, journalist here, did a really, really cool visualization of how that works. That'll be in show notes. If you found my explanation of it um, not crystal clear. A, a visual help. Uh, I think that, that that's worth going and checking out. All right, we're going to take a break now. 
what do you like? You like a Pinot Noir? You, you like a Manhattan? Uh, other classic cocktails? A, a nice cold beer? So it's, there's a lot of different tastes out there, but what nobody likes is needing to go out and, and pick up more drinks because uh, you're running out. Um, so introducing Saucy, the alcohol delivery app. Uh, they got your favorite wine, beer, liquor, spirits to your door on demand. Uh, it's it's Uber for alcohol. That's, that's what they're calling it. And, and if you're in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, San Diego, or Sacramento, your Saucy order will arrive at your door in 30 minutes or less, ready to drink. Uh, for the rest of us, Saucy will deliver beer, wine, or spirits to your door in two days or less nationwide. There are no order minimums, no delivery fees, no running to the store. If you've got the Saucy app, you've got a fully stocked bar on your phone. And even better, for a limited time, you can get $50 off when you download the Saucy app and enter promo code WEEDS. That's the Saucy app. It's spelled S-A-U-C-E-Y. And you enter promo code WEEDS for $15 off. Uh, get the app today. Use the promo code weeds. Uh, it's going to be a really convenient sort of fun way to get all the beer, wine, liquor, anything you want on demand. Really fun. Okay. Uh, so the, the other thing we, we wanted to talk about today is the, the situation with Chip, uh, which I am uh, really hoping Sarah can explain to me because I don't understand it. A little while back, my understanding was Chip was going to expire soon. So Congress had to reauthorize it or it would expire and children would lose their health insurance. Then it expired. Kids still have their health insurance. It's kind of weird, right? That's nice. Good for them. <laughs> good but weird. Okay, so CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program. Um, it is a program that covers about 9 million low- and middle-income children across the United States. Generally enjoys pretty widespread bipartisan support. It is something that Republicans have repeatedly voted to reauthorize, um, something that Orrin Hatch in particular, um, the Senate Finance um, Committee chair from Utah, has been a big supporter of. And on September 30th, um, which you might remember as two Saturdays ago, the budget for that program expired. There was some chatter about doing a deal. Um, if you, It feels like eons ago, but like mid-September, Graham Cassidy becomes a new hotness, and all other health policy legislating is essentially thrown aside for this last effort at Obamacare repeal. So, you know, they get to this deadline, it comes and goes, and the program is not reauthorized. And this is pretty unprecedented. You know, I talked to some folks who followed CHIP for a while. The budget has never expired for this long. Um, so to Matt's question, like, why have 9 million children not lost their health insurance? The way CHIP is structured is a little different than the Obamacare tax credits, which kind of roll out each month Um CHIP is essentially given to states as a multi-year appropriation, and most of them run their budgets in a way where, you know, they have some funding left over at the end. But they don't have a lot. Um, I believe it's about 11 states say if this is not reauthorized, they only have enough money to go through the end of the year. Um, Utah, for example, has said they are going to start sending out notices November 1st to their CHIP family saying this program will not exist in 2018, that they need to start preparing for that transition in about— a month or so. But right now, almost all the states basically say we have some money left over from the last appropriation, which I think was two years ago, um, that they, you know, can still keep the trains running, they can still provide that insurance. But that is becoming increasingly less true. Um, Minnesota just received last week an emergency $3.6 million grant because Minnesota was literally, they just didn't save as much money as other states. Um so right now where things are is that there actually is no clear path to a deal on CHIP at this point. The Senate Finance Committee, they passed a plan um, to reauthorize it for five years. It did not include any pay-fors, which is the you, you kind of need to explain how you're going to pay for it. Um, 
And the I mean, house, do you? <laughs> I mean, I guess you could do it as deficit spending, but the house is not interested in that. The right. house has its own plan, which has some pretty partisan. Um, this is a House Republican plan. So right now, the Senate is actually working on a bipartisan plan. Um, Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon, Senator Orrin Hatch um, from Utah, who run the Senate Finance Committee, they've come together and said, we have a plan to reauthorize CHIP for five years. They're not going to provide any pay-fors in that plan, at least so far. The House has a plan that is just being pushed by Republicans, which does pay for it in some pretty partisan ways. The ways they would extend CHIP um, for five years is they would cut the Obamacare public health fund by $6.4 billion. Um, they would cut the grace period for Obamacare enrollees who miss payments. So right now, you can miss up to three months of payments before you're kicked off your insurance. Um, they would cut that period down to one month, which should save the government some money because you know health insurance companies aren't providing a free insurance in that space. Um, they would means test Medicare. They would um, have people who get some big lump sum. It's kind of called the lottery winner provision that they would get kicked off of Medicaid for a specific period of time because all of a sudden they have this influx of cash. And um, it's actually very technical. Like the amount of money you get depends like how long you lose your or affects how long you lose your Medicaid for. Um, so it, and it would repeal IPAB, the Independent Payment Advisory Board that is. Um, how does that save money repealing IPAB? It, well, right now it's never been enacted, so it seems like it's kind of it, it's nor is it staffed to my nor knowledge. Is it, right? No, no, like, no. They like IPAB confirmed. does not exist, but it just like it shows like what a part IPAB is supposed to save money. Right, it doesn't it, save money. Is the answer, it doesn't right? save money. It, it doesn't do anything right now because it doesn't exist. Um, so they're kind of stuck right now, and there doesn't seem. And they also want to tether this to some bigger packages with Puerto Rico aid. You know, meaning it could get caught up in some larger fights. So. It's a little bit stuck. There isn't that sense of urgency because its budget, you know, will run a little bit longer without intervention. But, you know, eventually we, November 1st is, what, 20, 20 some days from now. And that's when, you know, some states are going to start telling families this program doesn't exist next year. Uh, It's kind of a very quiet healthcare crisis that is unfolding. What were the pay-fors until now? That is an excellent question that I do not know the answer to. Because what we're paying right. for, because these are reasonably, mm-hmm. most of them are small pay for us, is what we're paying for, um, ex, like the program grows over time, pay for us maybe haven't grown as quickly. So you're having to fund excess program growth or like what? I don't think CHIP right. has dedicated funding sources. I don't think sources. it is dedicated. And the thing about CHIP is it's actually a pretty cheap insurance program yeah. to run. Like. Kids are really cheap to insure. They don't have a lot of needs. You know, in early, you know, as an infant, there are going to be a lot of visits, but generally it's pretty routine. Um, these are not like the, you know, budget bust. Children are like not budget busting health spenders. Um, that is an excellent question that I don't know the answer to, but it feels like with the house plan, like they are not like looking at this and saying like, we want to stay the status quo. Like they want to change it in a very partisan way. And I don't know how that eventually shakes out over the next month. So one thing that I do think is interesting here, unlike Obamacare, CHIP is actually a bipartisan mm-hmm. program. It's created in a bipartisan way. In fact, it's created by Orrin Hatch mm-hmm. uh, in, in large part alongside Ted Kennedy and, and Hillary Clinton. It has been expanded repeatedly in bipartisan ways. Republicans actually do not want CHIP to expire, both because many of them support it and also you cannot possibly imagine <laughs> a worse uh, political story than the bunch of the you all forgot to increase funding and now 9 million children don't have health insurance. I mean, like the the sympathy of the victims there is just too high. Uh, but the, it does seem to me that the, the problem is that they're going to 
commit themselves to to pay for it that the Democrats can't accept. And ultimately, I think there's going to be a real debate, a real disagreement. I don't think Democrats think Republicans have any leverage here. Mm-hmm. I think Democrats think if Republicans that chip expire, they will be blamed for it. It will look terrible for them. And Democrats will be that much closer to winning the, the 2018 election, which is all to say this is the kind of uh, situation where you could imagine an actual crisis and, and expiration, uh, consequential expiration happening. Yeah, I think that is certainly true. And it'll kind of like, it'll be a slow burn story that takes like a while and will get repeated headlines because you have states that are in very different situations. Some that say their chip money can last through mid-2018. Some that say it's going to expire, that they don't have enough to get through the next few months. Minnesota is the one state that's got an emergency grant that doesn't even have enough money to get through the rest of this year. That it's going to be like a, it's not a one-time cliff, which in some ways, you know, makes it easier. It's not this big catastrophic event as Obamacare repeal would have been. But it's like local news story after local news story of this like kind of slow rolling of kids in different states getting kicked off of health insurance. I sort of dispute Ezra's contention that Republicans don't want CHIP to expire. I mean, to me, the way you tell in Congress what it is people want is that they don't ask that it be paid for. Right. When you're talking about pay fors, you're talking about a program you actually don't care about. Right. Because we're talking about 14 billion dollars here. Right. Is is what they need to find at a time of low interest rates, at a time when the Republican Party's new budget they're doing is proposing like trillion dollars in, in new deficits financed by an estate tax created by an estate tax cut. And just back in in mid-September, right, I mean, when these negotiations were collapsing on September 18th, a $700 billion defense bill passed, right? So $700 billion, that's a higher number than $14 billion. Um, But more specifically than that, the Trump administration requested $603 billion, and they went to $700 billion. Right. They went ninety seven billion dollars over the presidential request and nobody. Right. I mean, this it passed eighty nine to eight um, and nobody was like, how are we going to pay for this? Like you pay for it. But the Treasury writes the checks. Right. And like what's happening here is that House Republicans would like to kill Chip because they do not. I mean, I made this one on things. There is no instance of a program that helps poor people that House Republicans support in any way. They don't want to take the political hit for killing Chip and depriving millions of poor children of their medical care. So they are creating a fake pretense that this is about pay-fors. But like in all these things, like we had a a Tara Colstrom on here. It's like they want to pay for tax cuts by taking away poor children's food. They want to pay for poor children's medicine by taking away their housing assistance. Like it's crazy. They just, they hate poor people. I shouldn't say they hate poor people. They love poor people and they sincerely and truly believe, as Paul Ryan has said, that providing food housing assistance and medical care to poor people hurts them. They they love the poor, like, so much and so sincerely. And, and you have to appreciate, like, the—I think the most underrated thing in American politics is the sincerity of Republicans' beliefs. And there's, like, a lot of takes about, oh, they're afraid. But, like, they, they're out there. They're doing the right thing. And in this case, the right thing is trying to take away poor kids' medicine. So I— 
don't on chip. I'm going to put chip in a different category than some of these. I just don't think that describes what we've been seeing over years with chip. So there's an, an, an effort by Republicans under George W. Bush to expand it that Bush, oddly enough, was the one vetoing and almost got a, a two thirds veto overturned. It ended up um, Barack Obama won the election, and then just got expanded even more so. But Hatch and Wyden, Hatch is a Republican, has like both Hatch helped create this program, but also um, have come up with a, an expansion. And I think a little bit to the point about pay for is like they clearly have said, eh, we don't like let's expand the program. Like, let's not worry that much about the pay force. I think some one mistake we make oftentimes right now in American politics is talking about Republicans mm-hmm. um, when there are a lot of factions in the Republican Party. And, and I do think it's true that conservative, like Tea Party-ish Republicans in the House. Well, to, to the way Matt put it, there's a very high bar for them to do anything related to social services for the poor. But even there, they have come up with pay for us. I mean, I think Republicans sincerely believe that the pay for us they have come up with are reasonable. They don't like Obamacare. They got elected saying they would repeal it. Um, chipping away at Obamacare to them, I think, seems like a perfectly reasonable way to pay for health care for children. And that if, you know, Democrats were serious about this, as they say, they would, you know, they would just sort of come to the table and rubber stamp it. Now, there's going to be a fight. We're going to see where people's bottom lines really are. Um, as Sarah says, I don't think people are acting with the urgency. Let's just see, like, the the absolute, like, bedrock principles of everybody involved. But I think that food stamps, I think TANF, TANF um, there are a couple of these programs that it is clear Republicans would gut as soon as they got uh, the opportunity to do so, whether for political or ideological reasons. Traditionally, CHIP hasn't been one of them, and I'm still skeptical CHIP is one of them. But I, I think that if they do, this CHIP is going to be— I think Republicans are willing to make CHIP a casualty of Obamacare. Mm-hmm. I think that's the way they they see this. They hate Obamacare so much, which is health insurance for poor people and lower-middle-income people, that I, I think that they would— and have sacrificed almost anything to continue expressing that hatred. And uh, um, my biggest worry for Chip is that Chip becomes a collateral damage of that fight. Well, and one other, you know, to your point, there's like not Republicans at this point. There is no indication of what President Trump wants to do on this. We have not seen him urge them to get this done. We have not seen him like wait or say like, you know, it's a bad deal. He's very we- busy telling Bob Cor- <laughs> well, Mike Pence to He's leave NFL And Kings. making fun of Bob Corker's yeah. height. So it's um that's like a whole other wild card in this debate is we have no idea what President Trump thinks about this program, if he thinks anything about this program, if there has been this kind of, you know, we need to let Obamacare implode and like does Chip get caught up in this like implode Obamacare debate? Like, I don't know, maybe. Um that that's another part that we haven't really seen any feedback from the executive and Again, like this is going to start becoming a lot more real in November. And even let's say, you know, there is that the funding does come through, you know, you're going to get families who say, well, my health insurance is going away if those letters get sent out. Like those letters can't be, you can, those letters can't fully be unsent. So this will have pretty real world impacts and in the next few weeks. So we're on like a pretty, like a decently tight deadline at this point. Uh, Speaking of tight deadlines. We got a white paper to get to. So let's take a break. Take a break. 
Everybody enjoys a nice, relaxing massage, but but no one really gets them that much. And, and the reason is, you know, either the spa's closed or it's booked when you want one or you're trying to get there and sitting in traffic. And, and the sort of logistics of the experience ruin the kind of relaxing qualities that you're looking for. Uh, so that's the problem that Zeal uh, is supposed to solve. You can book a five-star top-quality massage at a time that works for you in the most convenient place of all, your own home. Uh, you just go to zeal.com or, or use the iPhone or Android app. It's Zeal, spelled Z-E-E. L.com. You select from top, local, licensed, pre-screened massage therapists. You choose your favorite technique, a gender preference, time, location for your massage. They're open seven days a week, 365 days a year. A Zeal massage therapist can be at your door in as little as an hour. You get privacy, convenience, quality, and comfort with on-demand Zeal massages. They send one of 9,000 licensed therapists with a table, music, everything you need to turn your living room into a spa, give you a five-star massage. So the scheduling, the booking is easy, and you, so is payment. Right. Tip is included right on the app, so there's no cash changing hands. You don't need to wait all week for an appointment at the spa. Zeal could come to you right away. Uh, so find out why Zeal's been featured on the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Vogue, Good Morning America by bringing the spa to you with Zeal today. Uh, so to help you get started, our listeners can get $25 off your first massage by using promo code THEWEEDS at checkout, or, or even better, sign up for a Zeal's Massage membership. You get 20% off all your massages, plus a free table and sheet set. It's a $380 value, yours for free. There's no initiation fee to join the membership, just a great additional savings on top of the $25 discount you're going to get when you use promo code THEWEEDS. So you go to Zeal, spelled Z-E-E-L.com, or on Zeal's iPhone or Android app, and then make sure to click add promo code at checkout. Out. Use code THEWEEDS and get $25 off your first in-home, on-demand massage. All right. Uh, well, we present for you today uh, uh, Mental Accounting and Consumer Choice by, by Richard Thaler. And uh, th- this is a paper Who's that— Richard Thaler? Well, he, he just won the uh, Sverges Riksbank— Prize in oh, you're memory of Alfred oh, Nobel. You're, you're an asshole. Um, you know the, that. the Nobel Prize for, for economics, and he. Um, I was impressed with the pronunciation. Not gonna lie. I wasn't saying that. I I find that it's not a real Nobel Prize, which I thought Matt was. I alluding didn't say to. it wasn't you real. I simply I saw the 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 image memes that they created, and uh, I I enjoyed this Virgis Riksbank, frankly, <laughs> and I think they deserve credit. They put up the money. Here, It's a real Nobel Prize, but no Alfred Nobel did not put up the money for it, the Riksbank did. At any rate, Richard Thaler has won the prize. Um, this is an interesting paper in its own terms. I think less for its conclusion than for like the window it provides into the thought of Richard Thaler. I saw uh, Cardiff Garcia, who... Um, Right for the Financial Times, sort of joke that that he wanted to create what he called the uh, Tyrol Thaler spectrum uh, for the difficulty that like economics writers have explaining a Nobel Prize winner's work to the public. Um, <laughs> Jean Tyrol won a couple years ago, and like all of us who write about this, had been dreading this possibility for years because his work is both <laughs> complex and primarily published in French. So nobody nobody wanted to to write about it. The flip side is that Thaler's work is so clear, so accessible. He's such a great popular writer and the author of a number of popular books that it can be hard to persuade people that this is like actual groundbreaking economics research rather than just statements of the totally obvious, right? 
<laughs> so mental accounting and consumer choice, it, it starts, I, I'll read the lead. because like, like, Can I just say one thing before I jump into the paper? Because I think this is context of what yeah. we're saying. Richard Thaler is broadly considered to be the father of behavioral economics. Yes. Okay. I, I, an extremely influential figure, but it's like, really, you have to suspend disbelief to accept that this is influential research. So here's how he starts. Mr. and Mrs. L and Mr. and Mrs. H went on a fishing trip in the Northwest and caught some salmon. They packed the fish and sent it home on an airline, but the fish were lost in transit. They received $300 from the airline. The couples take the money, go out to dinner, and spend $225. They never spent that much at a restaurant before. So Thaler's point is that this and, and a number of similar anecdotes, it, it just makes sense if you tell the story, right? Like these people caught this like weird food-related windfall, so they went and blew it on a super expensive dinner. But it's surprisingly difficult in a standard economic model to account for this, right? Like, in theory, getting a $300 check from the airline is, like, just the same as receiving a five-cent weekly increase in your salary. But we all know that just, like, in real life, that's not how people think. They think of, not only do they think of windfalls as different from permanent income increases, but they think in terms of- Not a five-cent increase, uh, a $5 increase. Yes, that's correct. (laughs) Just wanted to- (laughs) (laughs) Bad math. Um, But so people think in terms of- like mental accounting buckets, right? So like you might be saving up your vacation money, uh, but then, you know, your bicycle breaks and, and, and you need to pay and you might need to like shift money from one account to the other or else you might not. You might just plow on. Uh, right, there was a- that house example. There's another one that I was like, well, of course this makes sense. And even though and I was like, eh, right, it was another suspended belief where he, I think the example was about a couple saving for uh, for a for a vacation home. Right. So he's talking about a couple simultaneously like saving up money for a vacation home or you could think of a college account for, for your children. So on the one hand, you're saving for the future. But on the other hand... Then they buy this car you're buying with a higher... A, you're buying a car yeah. with a loan, right? Yeah. And that doesn't doesn't strictly make sense in its own way. And, you know, the paper's short. It's, it's 11 pages and it's dedicated to sort of back-of-the-napkin efforts to sketch out like how you can try to model these aspects of common sense human behavior. Uh, But that's what his sort of behavioral economics revolution has been all about, is like trying to bring the study of the economy closer to the actual observed behavior of human participants. On Twitter, I love there was, um, I forget who it was, someone was asking for advice for PhDs, and he um, might be one of the few economic Nobel laureates who's very active on Twitter, who responded, you know, study the world, don't study the literature, which I thought was like a key insight into how his work um, works. And, you know, I, I totally agree. Like, I read this and I'm like, okay, like, yeah, like, this this all makes sense. Like, why is this 11 pages of examples of how people act? But I think the key insight is that it's actually, it's it's a rational and predictable way. Is that, like, you can predict how, through a lot of, like, really interesting, fun experiments, again, like, experiments that are interesting to write about that make a lot of sense, that you can actually predict the ways people are going to be irrational, that it's not just, you know, one person bouncing around making weird economic decisions that all of us, you know, are, are falling, likely fall um, fall to these different, like, economic biases, the mental accounting, where we kind of, like, put our money into different buckets, even though it makes no sense. Ec- economics says that money should be fungible, that it should move between these buckets. Um, but I, I think what I've liked about reading his work is understanding, like, the the theory, and I think like the big insight why he is the 
father of behavioral economics, is that this isn't just some random occurrence. It's actually repeatable, understandable, studyable biases. So uh, a couple things here. So this paper we're talking about, Mental Accounting Consumer Choice, it is one of the single most cited papers in all of economics. Uh, It came out in 1983. There's a line in it I really like because I think it does a good job explaining what was the consensus it was coming into. So Thaler writes, The paradigm of economic theory is to first characterize the solution to some problem and then to assume the relevant agents on average act accordingly. So literally, the way a lot of economics works is it figures out how a problem should be solved, and then when it models what people will do, it assumes they solve it that way. And what he basically does here uh, is he maths up human beings. Right, he creates mathematical approaches to doing it. So he's got one in here that I really enjoy personally, which is transaction costs. Uh, I'm sorry, transaction utility is what it's called. And transaction utility, it means a number of things, but it most fundamentally means people don't enjoy the feeling of being ripped off. And so he's got this very funny little experiment uh, and where he, he gave people the, this test. So he said, consider the following scenario. You're lying on the beach on a hot day. All you have to drink is ice sweater. For the last hour, you've been thinking about how much you would enjoy a nice cold bottle of your favorite brand of beer. Uh, your friend gets up to make a phone call and says, hey, I'll go buy some beer. And now the people getting this test, the friend either is going to go buy some beer from a fancy resort hotel or from a small rundown grocery store, right? You can get either version of this question. Uh, so your friend says, I'll go buy some beer from either the resort hotel or the small rundown grocery store. Uh, but the beer may be expensive. So, so just tell me how much you're willing to pay. If it's less than that, I'll bring it back. If it's not, forget it. We'll just drink you know, our, our ice water or whatever. Um, so the question is here, you trust your friend. He's not going to bargain with the, the folks who own the beer places. He's not going to rip you off. What price do you tell him he can quote? And so Thaler writes, the results from the survey were dramatic. The median price given for the fancy resort hotel version was $2.65, while the median for the small rundown grocery store version was $1.50. And basically, in any This was economic, in 1982. Right. Keep in mind. <laughs> this was expensive beer. In any economic model, this doesn't make any fucking sense at all, right? You're, you're sitting on the beach. You're hot. You want beer. There should be an amount in your, pri- in your head you're willing to pay for beer. <laughs> And, you know, then you should tell your friend, yeah, five bucks no matter what, or three bucks no matter what, or two or one or nothing or whatever it might be. The thing is, there's this transaction utility issue where on the one hand, you want beer. And on the other hand, you don't want to be ripped off. And like, that's actually part of what makes you happy. Um, he, he does this other thing where he says uh, something that we should start doing as, he, as economists, is instead of using the utility function from economic theory, which is this core idea of, you know, just people will maximize their utility, which more or less means like a a version of their well-being. We should use the value function used by um, Kahneman and Tversky, which is a psychological idea, which has more to do with a sort of holistic idea of of how you feel. Um, And so you're not, you know, maximizing well-being. You're also, you know, do you want to be ripped off? Do you like your friend? How do you feel about supporting a local business? It's got a lot more going on in it. A lot of stuff that ends up winning Nobel Prizes, Joseph Stiglitz's work on lemons, uh, Paul Krugman's work on on economic geography and other things, ends up being about how to math up, like how people really live. This turns out to be difficult, but but important when you can do it. And and Thaler does a great job on it. And also, uh, just an incredibly clear writer. This is a very rare economics paper in which if you don't understand the math, you can read the math part. Like he explains what math he's doing so clearly 
that you can actually read the whole thing. So there's a real clarity to the way Richard Thaler thinks. That just reading this paper, I think shine, it shines through, and it's just kind of a cool thing to, to see. I enjoyed it just on a pure craft level. Should give him a job here at Vox explaining policy. If, if Richard Thaler would like a job at Vox, um, I want him to know that now that he's won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> That's what was holding oh, I'm him sorry, back. the what prize? It's the Sverdjus Riksbank Prize in honor of Alfred Nobel. Now that he's won that prize, uh, I'm I'm willing to I'm I'm willing to talk. <laughs> I mean, you know, I I think that this this kind of work, right? I mean, it, he's mostly using it here to talk about actually slightly trivial co- consumer interactions. But I, I mean, I think in terms of stuff that we talk about all the time on the podcast, right? Like this tells us a lot about why efforts to sort of transform health and education services into like what maybe conservatives have convinced themselves ordinary commodity markets are like doesn't work that well. That like this stuff is all very um, normed up in slightly weird ways and that transforming like intimate things about like the well-being of your children or the medical care of your spouse into this like friend fetching the beer kind of context like leads to a it generates a lot of problems for people. I mean, even beyond the sort of baseline um, question of like, do you have enough money to pay for the things that that you need, right? That people are not going to, people are not necessarily going to be the kind of like sophisticated price-taking market clearers that, that you want. People don't necessarily want to be having financial transactions about the most kind of intimate matters in their life. And that in general, you know, if you really care about outcomes of things that go beyond kind of banal consumer preference, I like this shirt, I don't like this shirt, that there is really like a role for, you know, heavy-handed bureaucrats to correct people's errors about these things. He's been most influential in in the realm of retirement savings and the idea that uh, we need to, you know, either make people save money, trick people into saving more, or else just like fund a social security program correctly. But it applies to the kind of even, I think exactly how you take it forward into health and education is is a little less clear, but it it has, I think, the obvious implications in those. I I actually would push a little bit even broader than that, because I think this is something, I I think his work also has to be a cautionary tale to sort of enlighten, quote unquote, enlightened bureaucrats who want to, you know, utilize these these findings. So his work is then, he, he did this very famous book with Cass Sunstein, the, the lawyer uh, and later regulatory czar under Obama called Nudge, which is very much about how to use these predictably irrational dimensions of human behavior to try to create you know little nudges that make people do, do the right things. So when the Obama administration came I- into government, they created the stimulus bill and they created a tax cut in the stimulus bill. And uh, one of the tax cuts in the stimulus bill, and I'm going to forget the, the details of it, but it was structured in a way to try to get around some of these problems. So it was structured in a way where like, rather than get like this one big check, you actually got like a lot of little bumps semi-continuously in a way that was uh, meant to be more, What may, they believed from this kind of literature that it would be spent better. And instead what happened is nobody knew that the tax cut had happened, and it does not appear to have been spent more effectively. It was spent less effectively than than similar tax cuts in the past, according to at least uh, subsequent research. And that was very much like 
at, at that time, people forget this, but when the Obama administration came in, there was there were all these stories about how they were going to use behavioral economics to change everything. There was a Time magazine. I believe it was a cover story on this. Cass Sunstein was in the administration. They're all excited about the 401k research. And a lot of that stuff did not pan out. Um I think that one of I think there's a lot of really cool, predictably rational things that, that should help us design all kinds of things better. But I also think that one of the um, implications of this research is like not politically conservative, but you know, sort of much more like philosophically conservative. That people are very complicated, and trying to math up the way they're going to act is pretty complicated. And there's a lot more going on. Like, it's it's very unlikely that this paper came out in 1983. <laughs> it's like 2017. Um, it's very unlikely we figured out all the things that are going on in people's heads when they make very complex economic transactions. And so a lot of the time, simple can be better, but, uh, but also just very large amounts of change are, are going to go wrong in ways that are hard to predict because... I think we spent a lot of time on this show in, in Washington saying all the ways in which things don't like accord to the model. Like our healthcare system makes no fucking sense at all. And I think the flip side of the the version Matt's pointing out, like I'm I would like to replace our healthcare system with France's or Canada's or basically any other healthcare system. But getting from here to there is also going to have these tremendous huge transaction costs. And I just think in a way that is like kind of a bummer, uh, both the the lesson of some of this research and also lesson of some of the efforts to put this research into play has been that it's just complicated. The world is just complicated. And you, no matter how good you think your, your research is, like you do not have it right. Uh, and the closer you get to things people really care about and that they're really emotionally invested in, like not being ripped off or hating whichever politician is making decisions for them or whatever it is, the more their reaction is going to diverge from like what you think the lines on your chart showed it should be. All right. Um, that's the weeds. That's the weeds. That's the weeds. That's the weeds. Thanks for listening. Uh, thanks to our, our producer, uh, Peter Leonard. Uh, we are uh, very much looking forward to the debut of The Impact. Subscribe. Apple, Where you're going to see iTunes, quote unquote Apple. real people as if Ezra and I are <laughs> fake uh, talking about things. Yeah, we are. We are a little fake. We're, we're holograms. Um, also, y'all might be interested in the Ezra Klein show this week. I have Tanasi Coates on for a very, very, very interesting discussion. Is he a real person? Or, or it's hard, it's hard to say. He's in the media bubble. I yeah, we, we, we talk a lot, though, about race in America, about white supremacy, about Donald Trump, about what it means to be hopeful versus not hopeful, about change in America. It, it's a real... I really enjoy this sort of, like, bracing lack of happy stories in his philosophy. And I think Weeds listeners will, will like it, too. That sounds depressing. <laughs> it's very depressing, but it's a fun it's conversation. A good, depressing conversation. Uh, it's a, yeah, an intellectual. The, the last the, electroshock. The last line of my write up on this, which is on the site, we can put it in show notes, is for, for Coates, even hope can be covered in blood. So look forward to that. That sounds depressing, but I will listen. And we'll be back on Friday. <laughs> See you then. <laughs> <laughs>